The reading of the Scriptures from Romans chapter 8, reading verses 31 to 39. I invite your hearing of the reading of God's Word, both uh, in faith and also in joy, that uh, we have the Word of God. From Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Notwithstanding uh, the belief of many in the professing church, uh, we hold that we can have the full assurance of our faith. How can that be? How can we be so confident? I mean, why not hedge our bets and say, well, you know, maybe we can be assured. Uh, perhaps uh, we can have confidence this day. No, I think the theology of the Apostle Paul is that we can have full assurance because we are kept by the power of God and the love of God. And so the terminal point of assurance is not us, the church, but what God has done for us in Christ. And to these truths, uh, Paul is radically uh, affirmational that we can be confident of full assurance. In verses 31 to 34, Paul tells us that we have assurance because of our deliverance and victory in Christ. It's very interesting to ponder for a moment Paul's starting point. I was looking uh, this past week at um, Turretin's chapter on the perseverance of the saints and his systematic theology. It's very interesting chapter. Perseverance is something that you and I are given to do in the church, or we're to persevere in the faith. Uh, but it's very interesting in Turretin theology that he begins, if you will, his dissertation on our perseverance with God. And the essence of what he's saying is because of what God has done for us, we will persevere. And so, based upon what God has done for us in Christ, we can have full assurance. And based upon our deliverance and our victory in Christ, we should be assured because it's expression of our confidence 
in grasping what he has done for us. Our text this morning is an interplay of, as you know, of a number of questions and answers. Of danger and safety. And perhaps as important of our lives with the life of Christ. All of the questions are rhetorical. The first is, what shall we say to these things? Uh, the immediate reference is the fact that God causes all things to work together for good because he has foreloved us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and glorified us. All those verbs are in the past tense. It's what he's done for us. The beginning of point of assurance is what God has done for us. And this is our guarantee, even though the path to glory is associated with sufferings, verse 18, and with our own weaknesses, verse 26. That we are still fallen, and a gauntlet is before us, but we have the victory because of Christ. Very thing in the secular world, uh, in the business world perhaps predominantly, but uh, you used to read about golden parachutes. Uh, an executive in a company would uh, have put in his contract that if he's terminated for whatever reason, that he has a parachute to give him a soft landing. If you will, he's granted so many special benefits. Well, our golden parachute is the promises of God that break upon us fully and entirely and solely because we are in his son. The answer to the question, what shall we say to these things? Uh, if you look at latter part of verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? Again, rhetorical question. It's a conceptual uh, parallel to uh, Psalm 118, verse 6, the psalmist said, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The point is grasping that God is for me because I'm in his Son. And regardless of the turmoil about us, we can have a measure of security because of what God has done in Christ. It's a reality that while many are against us, God is on our side, rendering of them of no lasting account or effect. That all of our enemies cannot undo what God has done for us in Christ. God negates them all, trumps them all, and leaves them all wanting. So again, the starting point is what God has done. And therefore, our assurance comes from him. The answer in verse 32 is buttressed by the reality that God gave his own son for us. That is the terminal point. It, no, it's really the beginning point of our assurance. What God has done for us in his son. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 8 to 10. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
you and I know that we deserved none of it. He didn't die for us because we were deserving. Died for us because we were his predestined sons. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Notice, notice the verb, we shall be saved. Not, you know, maybe. If you're good enough, if you keep well enough, Paul introduces none of those contingencies. He says, we shall be saved because Christ died for us. Notice verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The life of Christ securing us and our salvation. It's an argument, as you know, from greater to lesser. If God did the great, namely sending his son, then he will do the lesser in keeping us amidst all of the vagaries of life. And because of him, he will freely give us all things. Uh, the future tense here, uh, to me, speaks to the certainty of God. Uh, if God is the subject, and he says he will freely give us all things, uh, then count it as an accomplished fact. Uh, the word freely give us is that from which we have our own word for grace, and it is the entire basis of God's dealings with us. He deals with us based upon his sovereign grace. If he dealt with us based upon our doings, we could really have no assurance. Because we would continually be plagued by the question, have I done enough? And the answer to that will always be no. But the reality of the starting point is that God has done for us in Christ, and he did it all. And therefore, he will freely give us all things. And the all things, of course, encompassing our sanctification, and our glorification. Uh, the direct object, all things, he will freely give us all things, speaks to every provision for our journey that will end in resurrection to glory. So at every point in our journey, perilous though it may be, he's provided all that we need. Certainly, he has secured our end state of resurrection to glory. So again, secured by God, we can have assurance in this life. In that sense, he is our guarantor. Uh, sometimes in life, we, uh, we need someone to guarantee a loan. you get my signature, the bank will probably say, well, thanks, but no thanks, come back. But if you get the signature of someone that is a billionaire, that I mean, they'll just, no problem. Well, I'm not really trying to attempt to deal in the financial realm, I'm attempting to deal in the spiritual realm, that God is the guarantor of our security, and therefore we can have the assurance that he will take us to the end and see us into eternity.
if you will, the warranty of our divine salvation and our final salvations forever. The warranty. I love that word. I hear it all the time. Do you have a warranty on your appliances? Well, call this company and pay them a fee. And if your warranty, if uh, your washing machine breaks, uh, they'll fix it for you. Uh, I get all these calls. I'm sure you do too. Oh, power socks, you need to buy. Your warranty's expired on uh, your 58 Corvette. You need to you know, buy another one. Extend it. I'm not dealing in mechanics. I'm dealing in uh, redemption to eternal life, glory of eternal life, our guarantor. Uh, guarantee written by God. He'll see us to the end. Uh, by application, it, it, it doesn't really uh, make us lethargic in the Christian life. Sometimes uh, those who oppose us theologically in this matter say, well, if you believe that, then you're just going to be lethargic. You're just going to go sin all the more because grace abounds. No, it inspires us to be faithful because of all that God has done for us. The inspiration to go the distance because we have a guarantee. The next uh, series of questions, verses 33 to 34, turn judicial. Who will bring charge against God's elect? This, uh, this verb is a, uh, a legal term uh, used often of the trials of the Apostle Paul uh, in the book of Acts. As you know, our uh, enemies uh, dogged him uh, with accusations before civil courts uh, to get him put to death. They were always bringing charges against the Apostle Paul. Uh, one of the great commentaries, the book of Romans, uh, Douglas Moo takes this as a reference to the last judgment. I'm a little bit more expansive. I think it applies to all of our prosecutors and all of our persecutors, and that God will overrule them all and throw their charges out of court. Because the answer is that God is the one justifying. Again, uh, in our study of the book of Romans, you know this is a legal term. The reality is that the court of heaven is the highest judicial authority transcending time. And every judiciary of man. Uh, the court of man may at some point condemn us for our faith in Jesus Christ, but God will overturn them all. If you will, he is the supreme court who's granted to us safe passage in his son and will vindicate us in the end. Oftentimes, as you know, in our own judicial system, our lower courts uh, or perhaps individuals who are overturned in lower courts will try to go to the Supreme Court. We do not have to go to the Supreme Court of Heaven because that court has justified us, accepted us as righteous because of His Son. 
The parallel legal term in verse 34 is who is the one who condemns? It's vital to recognize the interplay here between us and our Savior. Think back, if you will, to the Gospels. He was condemned at his religious trial. For example, Mark chapter 16, verse 64, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. The question here breaks upon us, but the answer is that God has vindicated our Savior at his resurrection in glory, in session to glory, to the throne of God, and therefore he will vindicate us because we were in his Son. Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The right hand, in my own mind here, is an echo of Psalm 110, verse 1. God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. And there... He intercedes for us. The messianic king enthroned, awaiting the defeat of all of his enemies. The defeat is as sure and certain as God is God the Father. And God receives God the Son, meaning the victory and vindication is absolute. If he did it for God the Son, his biological son, he will do it for all of his adopted sons. Uh, the text is also conceptually parallel to the third servant song. As you know, the servant's son is charged and punished unjustly, but he confesses his innocence and he acknowledges that he will not be ashamed because God will vindicate him and judge his accusers. The great irony of life God will vindicate us and judge all of our accusers. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 50. And verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? The son says. Let us stand up to each other. Who is the case against me? Let him draw near to me. It's like, bring your charge. Come into court with me. What court? The divine court. The court of God. The supreme court. It's as if to use a colloquialism of our own culture and age, bring it on. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Now notice, notice their condemnation. Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. All the vagaries of life when we encounter men who make accusations against us because uh, we're the sons of God, they will all wear out like a garment, be thrown away and the moth will eat them forever. 
And so in the servant song, God will draw near and defend him. He was acquitted by the eternal judge and the judgment of time will render all of his accusers to be no effect or standing before the only court that really matters. It is important, I think, to recognize uh, our identity in Christ. I think that's part of the interplay here. Uh, the interplay between God has done for his eternal son, and therefore based upon that, what he's going to do for us. Uh, the grace of God is magnified here in the reality that the eternal son was totally innocent. We were totally guilty, but acquitted too because of his son. And the acquittal transcends time, assures us of eternal vindication. And the decision of the heavenly court will reverse the courts of men. It is as certain as the effects of time on all matter. It's like some of you, you know, perhaps you have a garment that's just too worn out to be repaired. And so, even though you may dearly love that garment or that scarf or that hat, you, you, you must consign it to the trash. That's what God will do in eternity for those who bring charge against the elect of God. So what of us who are caught by false accusers? Well, in the interim, King Messiah at the divine court intercedes for us, prays for us. Again, hearkening back to verse 27. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The great tandem here of spirit and son praying for the sons of God in their perilous journey to heaven. And their prayers are well received, as you know. And they secure our help. And so once again, secured by God, we can have assurance in this life. Confidence in this life. That we will make it to the end. Because the entirety of the matter here begins with what God has done. Securing what God will do. Verses 35 to 39, we have assurance because nothing can separate us from God's love. Verses 35 to 39, we leave the judicial for what is foundational to our perseverance and victory. Uh, the rhetorical question is, what can separate us from the love of Christ? If you begin with man, which is what a lot of, of uh, contemporary Christians do, uh, all of these threats will undo you, unravel you in the end. Again, Paul doesn't begin with our faith. He begins with what God has done for us in his son. The rhetorical question is what can separate us from the love of Christ? Again, verse 35. And then there follows a long list of potential threats. 
I believe, and I think this is uh, important, I understand that uh, many in the contemporary church today uh, do not hold this uh, position, but I believe uh, that all of these are elements of the end-time tribulation, the threats breaking upon us. Uh, the tribulation was begun by the sun, the crucifixion surging with incredible violence upon the Son of God. And so because of our identity with him, what too will we expect? Well, again, the end-time tribulation that he began. The array here in the text is formidable. And Paul intensifies it with a quotation uh, from Psalm 44, verse 22. Uh, the psalm is a lament psalm, as you might imagine. The psalmist is in a lamentable estate, a state of distress and danger. He is in trouble. He's being persecuted. Reminded uh, the words of our Lord that he says about all of us. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. He goes on to say, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but I'm not so sure I even get that far. Sheep don't have a chance against wolves except God is their shepherd. I mean, they... I mean, think about it. They don't run fast enough. Their teeth aren't sharp enough. Their cry scares no one. They have no defense. Psalm 44, 22, For thy sake we are being killed all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 36. It's an illustration of the previous verse. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Well, I kind of wonder, I mean, how, any, how is it that anybody can say, well, I'm not going through the end time tribulation. That's yet future. Paul seems to make it to be present. A present reality. I mean, look at the text. Persecution. Famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. It's begun. Some places in the world, it's terrifying. If you were a Christian in Ukraine, you might be terrified. We appear defenseless. But the lament turns in a final prayer. Verse 26 of Psalm 44. Rise up, the psalmist says to his God, be our help and redeem us for the sake of thy loving kindness. Call for redemption based upon the grace of God. The Greek translation of the Old Testament has uh, based on your name, in other words, your reputation. It's kind of a great insight. 
Lord, based upon who you are, and you have promised us, you are our guarantor. You have guaranteed our safety, our safe passage. Rescue us, final prayer. Your reputation's at stake. Uh, the Hebrew Bible has, of course, based upon your loyal love for us, that God will answer from his covenantal loyalty to his people. Uh, the Hebrew word hesed, again, uh, speaks to God's covenantal loyalty. I love, I love the word covenantal. Matched with the word loyalty. That God is loyal to his people. It's a great reminder because of the vagary of the word loyalty in our own age. The promises of men. point here of the text is breaks upon the promises of God. His loyalty to His people. A loyalty that will never wear out. It's timeless. Because God is eternal and infinite and therefore timeless. And His promises therefore are infinite and timeless. You know, by the way, great great application. If He was loyal to you, Be loyal to him. If he was loyal to his son, be loyal to his church because he's head of the church. I mean, I get loyalty to radio stations and Bible studies. I understand that. Those are secondary. Christ died for a church. Be loyal. Go the distance. Go to the end. Because God was loyal to his beloved son. The, uh, the text, uh, verse uh, 36, um, also an allusion to Isaiah 53 7. It's important to understand our identity with Christ. What he went through, we go through in a measure, albeit uh, less of a measure, but uh, he went the full measure of devotion. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears. So he did not open his mouth to defend himself because he knew his father would be the ultimate answer. Kind of hearkening back to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, 11, thou dost give us a sheep to be eaten so that the servant song, the fourth servant song, which is Isaiah 53, engages the success of the servant as the basis of our success in him. And Paul confirms this in verse 37 of Romans chapter 8. But in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Uh, the verb overwhelmingly conquer is uh, only used here in the New Testament. The simplex verb 
part of the compound verb uh, is used on numerous occasions. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We overcome. That's the effect. What's the cause? Greater is he that is in us. We overcome because he overcame. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Great uh, picture of the persecution of the church by Satan pursuing it, uh, trying to run it in to the ground, uh, beginning with an incredible flood of deception. Revelation chapter 12, context, verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. So Satan is kicked out of court because his accusations are not accepted. Now notice, notice the effect the judicial victory of Christ has an effect in our lives. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. What's the cause? The blood of the Lamb. It's incredible that our victory, our overcoming, is the effect caused by the blood of the Lamb. A great reminder, by the way, of the gospel. Uh, the grace of God, the shedding of the blood of his only begotten son uh, that save, it saves. Not contingently, it saves his people. We'll see them to the end. So the victory comes from him that loved us. As cause is related to effect. That Secured by God, we can have assurance in this life. The love of Christ. So think about it. Can anything separate you from that love? It's an eternal love. It broke upon us before we were even born. It accomplished for us before we were even born. The application of that love to us was made certain by the dispatch of the Holy Spirit. And what's the basis of the actions of the Spirit? The success of the Son upon the cross. Application is as certain as the resurrection is the Son. I've always been enamored by John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Love has a beginning point. 
doesn't say, well, I started to love you. It says he loved them to the end. And therefore he will see us to the end. Another illustration of cause and effect, 1 Peter uh, chapter th- uh, 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice Peter's starting point the causal actions of God, who has caused us to be born again. through a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice, notice the assurance that we should have. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. An inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved. You know, we all make reservations. I always get tickled. Uh, would you write down uh, Mr. Bowersox or your confirmation number? And then there's like this 20 long. I mean, I, I fall asleep before they get to the final number. But here, the apostle is radical reserved in heaven because of Christ. Our full assurance. regardless of the vagaries that swirl about us. That our Savior loved us to the end. And we have a salvation that will break upon the fullness of reality in the coming of our Savior. That his love is our vanguard and rear guard and the foundation securing us for all time. Uh, Nothing can separate us. love of Christ. If he went to the cross for us, he'll take us through all of time. Paul issues a summary. All that he said, if there's anyone who lacks assurance, this summary is uh, remarkable. Paul says, I'm convinced. And the direct object is a comprehensive list of threats containing, I believe, three merisms and an interplay between neither or nor. The merisms are important because they're all-encompassing. Notice the first one, neither death nor life. Everything in between is the point of the merism. Present and future. The point is everything in between, the present and the future. I'm always amazed when I read a contemporary uh, Wesleyan, Arminian 
uh, statements of, uh, well, we've been forgiven. And there's uh, an interplay that forgiven of all past and present sins. That's not my problem. My problem is future sin. Been forgiven for that too. Present and future. Height or depth. Spatial, if you will, merism between heaven and hell. The angels and principalities or powers of evil forces arrayed against us as the agent of the dark angel Satan. All of his agents arrayed against us, more powerful than us. Sheep in the midst of wolves we are. And the final ransacks every possible creature. I'm convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing. Every eventuality has been covered by the Apostle Paul. And so nothing can separate us. Love of God in Christ. That's the conclusion. Nothing is able to trump the love of Christ for his sons. The love of the Creator who is omnipotent and omnipresent is a guarantor as secured by his eternal Son. There is no greater certainty than this. Secured by God, we can have assurance in this present life. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, The Lord knows those who are His. The implication is we can be faithful to the end because He will rescue us. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. Of the great tribulation, who knows what forms of intensity awaits us in the future. But the prophet says, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment will be condemned. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. And so, I am very um, understanding of, of all of us, including myself, that at different times in my life say, God, Phil, are you really sure? I mean, in light of the things that I've done and you've done, how can you be so sure? Beginning point is Christ took it all to the cross. Who knew, who knew it all, who knows it all, but ransomed us nonetheless. And that our assurance and security comes from the reality of the triune God who cannot, 
who cannot and therefore will not fail us. And therefore, we will not fail because we cannot be separated from eternal love and its power and grace that touches us each and every day. And may that realization grant us a firm assurance and hope in Him who loves us to the end and who will take us to the end.